Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. Since the launch of my podcast, I've also recently released a number one best-selling book called One for the Road, which can be purchased via Amazon. It covers my own personal story and also offers lots of valuable tips on how you too can learn to kick alcohol out of your life for good. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, share and leave a review. Our amazing sponsors for this season are Tweak Life. Do you want to make a positive change to your mental, physical or financial health and not sure where to start? Tweak Life have brought together all areas of well-being in a free, easy-to-use website. You can find their link in the show notes and on my bio via my Instagram, at SoberDave. My guest today on One for the Road is a singer, an actress, a podcaster, and all-round ambassador for the real benefits of giving up alcohol. She has just recently celebrated three years of sobriety and is such a valuable member of the sober community. This episode is the last of the season and I'm going to be taking a short break for now just to recoup. But I will be back soon with even more valuable guests for season nine. Thanks for all your support. And without further ado, please welcome the wonderful Suzanne Shaw. Morning, Susie. Uh, Welcome to my show, One for the Road. How are you feeling this morning? Yeah, I'm really good. Uh, Life is great, you know, and it's great off a hangover. So, um, yeah, life is good. Thank you. I know. You've just celebrated three years of your wonderful sobriety, haven't you? I know. I know. And I can't believe it, really. When I set out on my sobriety, I wasn't sure, really uncertain and felt overwhelmed. I was hoping that I would get through one month. Then I was hoping I'd get through three months. And then my aim originally was to just do one year off the drink um, and then see how I felt like that. And now three years later, here I am. And I know I would never go back. No, that's how I feel. Uh, And we can talk about this later on. But as uh, you know, these are life stories and people really love them and they love you. So it'd be really good to wind it back to uh, when you were growing up, how that looked for you. And we can go from there. Yeah. Oh, well, it all started, my life started in a little place in Lancashire called Radcliffe. Um, I don't know if you know Radcliffe. I used to say I'm from Bury or from Whitefield. I never actually said Radcliffe because <laughs> uh, uh, as much as it was a great little town, um, it was it was probably not the greatest of them all in Lancashire. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was a lovely upbringing. Um, I lived literally 100 yards down the road from my grandmother. Um, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house. Um, But I think possibly like a lot of people out there, um, I came from um, a a home where eventually it became broken. My parents divorced at the age of 15. Um, And they had a very volatile relationship. And probably what I didn't realize at the time is the reason it was volatile is probably because of my dad's drinking habits. 
But, you know, saying that, you know, I was very much loved, uh, myself and my brother. My parents worked hard to give us what we wanted. My mum is now a retired NHS nurse. Uh, She works within mental health. So a very um, strong, determined and intelligent woman who, um, you know, left school with not much education, but went back into getting more and more education as she kind of worked through her worked through the ranks of the NHS. And she wasn't afraid of graft and work. And I and I learned a lot from my mum on that side of things. And, you know, my, my dad, uh, he was an entrepreneur, he originally was a wanted to be a footballer. But unfortunately, football didn't end up being his destiny probably because he liked the booze too much. And um, and then he set up his own camera business and he was a cameraman. And he did that all his life. And he, he you know, he, he ran a very successful business. Um, and so we kind of had everything we could wish for. We went on the luxury holidays. Every other year we went abroad. I remember this. It was like a camping holiday one year. And then they saved up to go, we go abroad, but we went to Disney, we went to Italy, we went to lots of different places, you know, America, Europe. Um, And so we were very lucky with, um, we were quite well traveled by the time I was, you know, in my teen years and and left home. Um, But as a child, you know, I, um, I I spent a lot of my time at my grandparents' house because my dad would be working hard on his business. My mum would often work nights. And so my grandparents did a lot of the upbringing as well. You know, they say it takes a, a village to raise a family. Um, yeah. You know, at my nan's house, we'd, you know, aunts and uncles would be coming and going. People would be kicked out of the houses. So people would be living with my nan again. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was very lively. My, I grew up with a mentally disabled auntie um, called Brenda. And um, when she was uh, a baby, she got the measles and uh, which meant, that it affected her quite badly and she had the ability of an eight-year-old. So um, my my Auntie Brenda was around us a lot, but she also suffered from schizophrenia. So um, there was a lot of volatile behaviour within that household as well. So, yeah, it was a very kind of lively life, really, Um, always on the go, something always happening. And there's no surprise that, um, you know, at this point in my life, I love a project and I love to constantly put my energy into things. Um, with that kind of upbringing. It sounds fascinating, actually. And um, sometimes our childhoods can really um, form our lives later on because mm. I grew up and it was like a, I, I can honestly say, like when people say about trauma and alcoholism or whatever, you know, I had that thing where mum left, but I had quite a secure upbringing and my mum and dad didn't drink. But I was um, like really like, kept indoors a little bit I wasn't one of those lads that was allowed out and uh, I was really insecure Mm -hmm. and I had no confidence as well and uh, it's interesting how it can shape your life moving on Um, what what part of your life did you start to feel interested in acting or singing was you always one of those girls that was singing into your hairbrush (laughs) always to be honest I started at a really young age um, so my, I was very close to our neighbour, uh, Helen, and still are. She's one of my best friends. In fact, she's like my sister, really. We we grew up, I, I've known her all my life. And she started dance uh, 
lessons and I was three and I just wanted to be like Helen and so um, I started dance lessons too but the minute I started dance lessons at three years old in fact I was two because my mum said as soon as I was allowed to be out of nappies I could go to ballet class and so um, I went to ballet class at uh, at the age of two and um, I've been on the stage performing and competing professionally (laughs) from the age of four um yeah I was competing in the dance competitions I'd got my first semi-professional show at the age of five which was Annie playing Molly and then at nine I was um uh doing a professional um touring musical theatre called Showboat and then at the age of 12 I landed my first tv contract um, and I was in a TV production called Elidor, which was a kid's CBBC drama. And so I've done it all my life. I've never known anything else. And when I've ever been questioned, what else would you do apart from perform? I'd be like, nothing. There is no option B. I only have an option A. I don't do anything else. This is what I do with my life. And so it's been in my blood and just been in my bones since the age of three years old. And yeah, I've I've just I've loved it. I've loved everything about it. And so yeah, it's it's been a massive part of my life. I stopped competing uh, in dance competitions at the age of 16. And then at the age of 18 is when um I when I was at college because uh, I went to uh, a local college to do performing arts and then I was looking to go to drama college to go to university. Um at like a Rose Bruford's or a um a, a Talent Conte and the, before I got, before I actually completed my college, um, I got into hearsay. So um, I left early and I actually didn't finish my BTEC diploma in performing arts. Um, and then the rest is kind of history. Really. Yeah. Yeah. So as you were growing up into your teens, was, uh, did you start drinking? At, a lot of us, we say we started drinking 14, 15, but were you really ambitious and it, it didn't really start to play a part in your life? Um, no, I, I like to burn the candle at both ends, Dave. <laughs> I was a professional yeah. at that before I even became a professional at it. Um, I think because of my success in my early life of being on the TV, I got picked on a lot at school. Now, I wouldn't say I was severely bullied, but I was picked on because I was on TV um, and people didn't want, didn't kind of like that and they didn't. I suppose I felt like I didn't want to come across that I was better than anybody else. I still wanted to fit in. I remember that I just desperately didn't want to go to school because I I went through like this period of people calling me names, like saying I was terrible on the TV. I I was being pushed around a little bit and I just wanted to leave and I wanted to go to a place like a a drama school then in my life where I felt like I'd fit in but the only the one thing that I didn't want to do was move away from home and move away from my parents I was quite a shy person so to think of going to a boarding school at that age and going into that environment felt quite intimidating to me but at the same time I just didn't want to stay at school so the way I kind of could fit in was to smoke was to drink, was to kind of fit in with the cool kids so they had my back so that I wasn't being better than anybody else, that I was coming in at their level and that, um, yeah, they they would protect me. And so that's what I did. So at like the age of 14, 15, I got a boyfriend, I was smoking, I was going to the parties and I was drinking to fit in. And I actually genuinely didn't want to do that. My career was really important to me. But it was a way of me finding 
a home and that a place and that I was I was a people pleaser and I just yeah. didn't want to be the outsider that's exactly like me really because you know what I said about I was really shy yeah. I mean I remember right I lived in a place called Cost Shorten in Surrey Right, yeah. and, and it was a rough school that I went to, and then there was a knock on the door, and I remember the lads from the school were the lads I didn't really want to mix with, and I was <laughs> sounds weird, but I, I was making Meccano crane on the floor at, at like nearly four, thirteen, I think I was, and there was these big lads, not as you coming up the circle, which is a, a place where they used to hang out and drink. Yeah. Get, get the adults to buy the beers from the offie, you know, with a bit of loose change. And I said to dad, no, no, I, d- I don't, I don't want to go out of them. Like, cause I was petrified of them because I didn't, but when mum left, I then realized they were my only sort of crutch to fit in because I was kind of bullied for being a bit soft and whatnot. And like you, I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to drink. I didn't want to smoke, but I did it because I wanted to feel like I fitted in and and I wonder how many people listening to this now can relate to that, that actually it's like the people please inside. And that went on for nearly all of my drinking career to, you know, whatever person I bump into, into a pub, I would shape shift around them. So it could be a builder, a plumber, a lawyer, you know, I, I would, I would shift my conversation just to feel like they like me. Yeah, I, I hear you. I massively hear you on that. Um, like a chameleon, you would just try and fit in in whatever environment. So yeah. you feel uncomfortable um, because I didn't ever want to feel like one, I was above anybody or anybody thought I was above them. And that, you know, that I was like them, that they could relate to me. And so, and the industry you were in as well was probably rife with drinking. I mean, yeah. I'm a little bit older. Huh? Um, <laughs> but I remember my first job, right, was in Wimbledon, Broadway, opposite Wimbledon Theatre. And yeah. back in the day then, which was in the 80s, there was a wine bar two doors along where from my works called What's It's Wine Bar. And all the actors and actresses used to go from the theatre lunchtime and go in there. And I met Oliver Reed. I actually arm wrestled Oliver Reed. I was 16 years old. Uh, and his son, Mark Reed, was in there. You know, there was all the... Old school, Malcolm and Wise appeared there and all the old school. And And when I was 16, it's like I used to look up to these people. Oh, my God, they're drinking lunchtime, like whiskey and and these actors and whatever. So I bet that didn't help you either when when your career expanded. Actually, no, it's funny because when I got into Hearsay, we didn't have time to party or drink. And at that point, I think I'd done done the youth side of things. I'd... um, been to you know the 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 parties you know got into the clubs um did the smoking down the alley at school and and then when I got to um to to college because it wasn't naturally in me that I, I didn't actually enjoy smoking I did it to stay cool so I would only ever do it when I was in a certain environment um when I got into hearsay it was a chance for me not to do the things that I hated and because we we just didn't have time. So there wasn't yeah. any drinking within that that time. You know, nobody smoked. Well, actually, no, the two boys did smoke in the band. They smoked. Um, but I, I just wasn't into it. The girls didn't smoke. And, and, and not for a while anyway. And then eventually we did. Um, and then, yeah, it was just, 
it was just so strange that first year of us um, being in a band together. We we didn't really drink. We didn't go out. We didn't have time to. It mm. was literally on the go all the time. And it wasn't until kind of when Kim left the band and we um, started to have a little bit more time on our hands. Um, we brought another member into Hearsay. We all just started to go out a little bit more and let our hair down. And um, and that's, yeah, when I'd go out to like a, a club called Pop. And it was cool then. It was cool to fall out of a nightclub drunk and you weren't judged for it, actually. It kind of made you a little bit more credible. And it wasn't that I was aiming to do that. It just ended up happening a few times. And then, yeah, I, then the smoking continued and... And, and yeah, I was just drinking more and more. Um, and then I got into theatre. Um, and theatre, strangely enough, is probably more NX. Well, I suppose the entire industry really is is um, an acceptable industry to drink in. Um, but yeah, it was it was part of what it came with. You know, it was you do a show. How do you relax after the show? You have a drink. That's how you relax. You're on tour. You, are, you don't have your family there. You become a family. You go out, you party. You know, there was a lot of that on the road. And it was of an era where, you know, we, we were binge drinking night after night and then waking up, feeling groggy, trying to get yourself ready to then do a performance. And being young, I had the stamina to do that. And I was able to, you know, do a, still do a really good job, get employed yeah. and then drink in the evening as well. I've had a few musicians on the podcast and uh, one share, Adela Khan, the bass guitarist for the Gorillas, and he, he, you know, he was saying how difficult it was after the show. It wasn't so much the nerves leading up to it. Once you get on the stage yeah. and he's played in front of literally thousands, he's just come off a tour of Mexico and whatever. Yeah. Um, and it, it was the adrenaline after of how you come down where everyone's drunk and taking drugs and that. And he's sitting in his hotel room, like twiddling his thumbs. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, that's what yeah. he struggled with. And you generally do have to have a strategy in place to come down from that adrenaline. You really do. And um, I remember speaking to Bev Knight and she was talking about, and this was on my podcast, actually. She, um, she said she's not a drinker and she never has drunk. And for a long time, she didn't fit in in the industry because she wasn't a drinker. Now her career is flying and yeah. she's invited to everything because actually now it is acceptable not to drink and a lot of people don't drink now. Um, but back when I was in hearsay in her time in the industry, she said it was it was just she wasn't she was the weird one really. And she just said, you know, I said, what do you do then when you you know finish a show when you've done a big concert or you know a TV gig or a theatre gig? And she's like, I have this routine and I have to stick to it. Her husband yeah. runs her a bath and her her downtime, she has to become Beverly Knight. She has to leave stage Beverly Knight at home at, on the stage and she has to come home and go back to her life and have a bath, listen to a podcast and find her way to come down from the adrenaline yeah. so that she's able to um, get to bed and get some sleep. So Beverly Knight, I absolutely love Right, I grew up with her music, and I had tickets to see Beverly Knight. It was a Friday night, uh, eight thirty performance, and I went for pre-drinks in the pub up the road, and I didn't even go to see her. Really? Yeah, I I said right, let, let's just get one more drink before we go, and I was already drunk, and I bought two bottles of wine. 
and sat down and completely sacked it off. And I woke up in the morning and uh, my first day at college, I was learning to be a counsellor. And all day I was in this room with people and they said, it stinks of booze in here. I didn't know anyone. It was a nightmare. But the fact I missed her as well off the back of my drinking is like ridiculous. So you need to hook me up with her. Because yeah. I love her. <laughs> no, she's, she's amazing, Bev. She's honestly, she's the most genuine, nicest person I know. In the yeah. She really is. Um, I did panto with her, actually, in the place that I'm doing panto at the moment in Birmingham. And um, she's just such a gracious, amazing. Yeah. Her talent is insane. It is, yeah. it, was, it is out of this world. But she's so modest with it. And, yeah, she's, she's wonderful. And she's, she's good at her job because she doesn't drink. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. And a lot of entrepreneurs now, you know, yeah. really successful business people don't drink. I, I had Char Wasmond on my podcast two or three weeks ago, MBE, and she's never drank in her whole life. And she puts her success down to that, you know. But le- leading up to um, the auditions for Hearsay, w- were you drinking then or was did you, like, go off on the wagon a little bit? Do you know what? It wasn't um, – I think – that kind of from my teens up until that point, I was drinking sporadically to fit in. It wasn't part of my life. It wasn't then I needed it at home. Yeah. Um, so no, I wa- I wasn't drinking when I was uh, on the lead up to the auditions or anything like that. I remember actually they'd, they'd filmed this section in, in Pop Stars on the TV show where a lot of them were in the bar. And then the night at, at the day after we were doing the auditions and they kind of pinpointed a few of the, the, the people who were uh, having a big a big booze up. And actually, I don't know whether you know him, a guy called Tanner. He was, yeah, Tanner Hassan, yeah. Yeah, he was named Taz at the time. Yeah, that's it. And, and he was one of the big drinkers there and they pinpointed him and then he, they followed him with the hangover the day after and, you know, going through the audition rounds. And I'd left them all to it and I went to bed because – it, honestly I was like I could take it or leave it it wasn't really a part of who I was um so I was okay with just going to bed and getting some sleep um I was exhausted enough with the process of the auditions that I just didn't I didn't need to do that and I wasn't in the cool gang as well um so yeah I I was I was fine then um I don't I don't ever feel like it was a problem I don't feel like it was a problem until probably more in, into my 20s that I started to, you know, think that this is becoming an issue. And I don't think, you know, again, I could take it or leave it when I was in hearsay. You know, I I smoked a lot when I drank. I smoked, like, in between. Again, I think that was a part of the peer pressure and fitting in. Um, Not that I actually ever wanted to. Who likes the taste of smoking? Nobody. No one. You have to really try hard to become a smoker. Um, But, yeah, I think I'd got into um, theatre. Obviously, I then got into a relationship with Darren Day, who was known as a quite a big drug addict. Um, and Darren, Darren did have a really bad relationship with drugs. Um, he was an addict. And it was a tough period of time being with him. Um, and I partaked in a little bit of what was going on in his world. Um, never kind of grabbed me or got into it, but it was around me. And I had to kind of learn how to be around an addict and it was really difficult it was really hard and I didn't want that for my life and I fell pregnant with um Corey quite early on w- into our relationship and again I wouldn't I wouldn't have said I, I like to have a drink I was a party girl 
but I wasn't getting up in the morning thinking about when am I going to have that next glass? When are we going to fit this into our lives? Again, I was just going along with somebody that was a part of my environment that it became a part of my life. And so uh, I fell pregnant. And then after I had Corey, I was, again, very much, you know, mum first. Um, then I, my career was, you know, I had to have my career because Darren and I split up within, within weeks of Corey being born. Um, you know, he, he was really poorly. He was very ill. And, and, and it's very difficult for Darren. He was really in the depth of addiction. And, you know, I just remember he, he couldn't keep it out of the house. And then it was just like, it was just not going to happen for us. You know, I had a brand new baby at home and there was just no way we were, you know, turning our house into a crack den for anything. Do you know what I mean? It was, he was, he was, you know, really poorly with, um, with his illness, with addiction. So, um, he he went and um and then he he kind of he moved on with his life with his partner and he he did get a bit of help but I think it's only in recent years that he's really been able to crack the addiction but I kind of got on with my life and like I said you know I was like any other kind of young girl really out there who I would binge drink when there was parties I would drink you know occasionally after a show and I had to get up with a baby in the morning so it wasn't it wasn't really that heavy. And I don't think it was until kind of um, later on that it really started to get a hold of me. Um, it was just topping it up one party after another. I was probably coming more dependent on it, more dependent on it as a lifestyle and, a, and to fit in around others rather than it be I need it at home and I need to drink when I wake up. And I suppose when it gripped me on every single emotion, I remember people saying, I, I drink when I'm sad, I drink when I'm bored, I drink when I'm happy. I would just drink when I was in the environment of drinking after a show and at a party. It then became more apparent that actually there's going to be a problem if I don't sort it out. Um, after my dad died in 2012 was when I was um, drinking on boredom, all the emotions Mm. Um, to escape from any trauma, to escape from pain, to escape from the memories of watching my dad die. Anytime I had like that moment of thinking about it, I'd be waiting for the evening, I'd have a drink, I'd be drinking at home. It became less of my environment to fit in to actually a coping mechanism. And I did that for several years obviously I had another baby within that time and again I stopped for a while so there was never any problem when I when I thought it was getting out of hand and actually I'd woke up and I'd gone I'm feeling really depressed I'm having really dark thoughts here I know it's booze that is doing this to me I'm gonna have to take a break um but those those times they were getting heavier and heavier and my thoughts were getting darker and darker and I remember there was this one time and I and it and afterwards, I'd, I'd, I ended up reading Alcohol Explained. I'd woke up in the morning and I, I used to have this thing where I just thought, I just want, I just don't want to wake up. I don't want to be awake today. I've got this wretched hangover. I feel dreadful for being here again. Why is this yet another place? I'm bored of my own story. I don't want to live. I want to take my life. Um, but I've got two children that I have to be here for. And I wouldn't have ever have done it but I was thinking these thoughts and they were becoming mm. more and more regular. I didn't want people to have to put up with me and my 
behavior of not being able to get out of bed and wanting to hide myself away from the world and being demotivated and being grumpy and moody to be around and volatile and you know I stopped sticking to my promises with my kids and it would turn into let's get a McDonald's and a watch a movie because that was the easier option for me to get through my hangover rather than actually invest in things that they wanted to do and I just thought I just can't live like this anymore and I remember actually thinking am I an addict do I need to actually get help? And I called um, like a, a helpline and I remember like ringing them and, th- and thinking, you know, what what is it going to cost me to go to rehab? Maybe this is what I need for my life. And, the, and, and realizing the cost of it and thinking, oh God, you know, I actually can't, that, that's, that's really costly. Um, yeah. To do a rehab privately without anybody knowing, do you know what I mean? Without, you, you know, away from the papers knowing about yeah. it. Because I couldn't, I I wasn't at a place where I could actually identify as an addict. I was just in a really, really dark place. And maybe I was, maybe I wasn't that place because I I think there's this big gray area of this middle lane drinker. And I was definitely going to that that line of tipping. That's really interesting what you say there because the the, um, space in between someone who can take or leave it or where I got to, where I drank every single day, but to huge excess. uh, And I couldn't even think about not drinking. You were edging more towards my spectrum. And that's why we say alcohol is accumulative, right? Because it's like, I often say to people, when you're on that bottle of wine and you get towards the end and you start to think, oh, I'll have one more out of the second bottle just for a nightcap, and when you have that first glass, before you know it, you're on the second glass. Before you know it, you're actually finishing off the second one. Yeah. You know? I, I used to have this thing where, and less and less the older I was getting, where I'd be like, right, I can cope. I can cope on a bottle of wine. I can do a bottle of wine and actually have an all right day. I can, mm. through, through my gritted teeth, I'll be all right. I'll be a bit foggy. If I go into that second bottle, I'm in really bad hangover territory. And when I did, I'd be like, "Oh, why am I doing this?" But I couldn't. I couldn't stop myself. But but a lot of the time, I would go, "Right, it's the bottle," and then I'd be fine. But then it was like the bottle is still bad enough. You know, you look at what units you should be drinking a week, and it shouldn't be over fourteen. I was way over fourteen on some nights. You know, it was like this is ridiculous. This is if this if this is destroying my mental health, and I knew it was. I knew it was with my thoughts. I knew it was with my behaviour. I knew it was because I was on antidepressants most of my life. 19 years I was on antidepressants for. And I knew that my lifestyle was creating my bad mental health. But before I know it, I know it would have have affected my physical health badly as well. There would be a point where, you know, drinking will, to excess, will bring on some kind of cancer at mm. some point it re- it will you know the studies show that and mm. you know you're told by the doctors the, the reason they say 14 units a week when they really should be saying no units a week is to protect you from these modern day illnesses and you know i was i was going to that place where it would have affected my uh, physical health i believe the reason my dad got a brain tumor was um down to his lifestyle of you know uh, treating himself so poorly through um, his lifestyle it was it was inevitable that I was heading to a place of just disaster so um yeah so 
back to the point of like I just I just knew I had to do something about this um I read alcohol explained and I think I'd stopped drinking for two months and I got myself fit and healthy and I felt amazing and then there was a social event to go to and it was a wedding and I thought to myself I never promised that I would go beyond two months I was just like I want to get a place where I've had such a big break from it that I'm able to moderate. Mm. And I thought this was a thing. I thought that's the thing that I'm going to do and I'll become that moderator because once upon a time, I was a moderator. I was back in Yeah, but it's too late now. Like you've gone over the line. That whole thing, turn a cucumber into a pickle. You can't turn a pickle back. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so I've had the taste of where it takes me to. Um, and, and so I went to that wedding and then the first night I said, no, I'm not going to drink. Cause it was like over a weekend. And I, you had the, just have the one with me. It's a light night anyway. We're not really going to start drinking till tomorrow. I just have the one. Well, I got absolutely blossomed that night. And I knew in the back of my mind, I was going to drink because before I needed to get my nails done and I went and got my nails done and there was a Tesco and this wedding was in the middle of nowhere. So I couldn't access anything. So I got myself a packet of fags. And what if I got myself, because I didn't really drink without, we didn't smoke without drinking. So I knew I was going to be drinking that night. And so um, I ended up getting really drunk. I was still drunk when I woke up in the morning. We were then back on it. And I'd had nine weeks of not drinking. I was feeling incredible. I'd been on my first holiday and hadn't drunk. I thought I'd really cracked this. And then it didn't even stop then because friends and family had come from abroad to be over it. So my brother-in-law lives in Malaysia and he was over for the wedding. And so he was staying with us for a few days. And then we drank through those few days because they were there. And it, I was just back, gripped back on it. And then it was another six months. Then I was like, I'll do Sober October. Then I had a month off it then. Um, and I was doing a big gig as well. So um, I didn't really want to drink on 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 the job because the job was a really big play and there was a lot of lines and it was a comedy and it was very quick. And the minute like I had a hangover, there was just no way I could have dealt with the show. So actually for, for the mo- duration of that show, I didn't really drink. So I could be really disciplined had this ability but when it came to fitting in peer pressure being part of the crowd being part of the tribe I had no control over it I just was such I had no integrity to go no this is who I want to be this is where I'm the happiest this is where I'm performing at my best when I don't drink Uh, went out the window because peer pressure just got me every single time and that has been from the minute I started my drinking to the point that I quit was all because of peer pressure and fitting in and wanting to be liked. And not as well, really knowing who you are really without it, because you can go one, two, three months and whatever, but then I think you reach a point of, well, I'm actually doing this, but who am I? And that that shows up when you're trying to fit in, because quite yeah. often when you go to, a, I mean, I went to an event as well and I was sitting there thinking, well, normally I'd laugh at this and I'm being really quiet. I don't know what to say to that. I didn't I didn't know how to act. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think there's a lot of that. And I think, um, you know, in the early days, and, and again, you know, the reason you drink, you drink, uh, I'll drink because it gives me confidence. It makes me less stressed. Um, I'll be a part of the crowd. I can fit in. I'll be able to have conversations. But the irony is, is when you don't drink, 
for a long period of time and you quit, you become more confident. Mm. You do know who you are. You're more willing to stand up for what your beliefs are. And so in any environment now, if I don't, I don't go along with what people say anymore. You know, if I don't believe in what they say, I actually just say, you know, actually, funnily enough, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't have to be, end up in an argument with them, but I can, you know, stand up for who I am for the first time in my life. I have an opinion and I have my values. I work on my values every day. So I don't end up back in that place where I'm under peer pressure of having to fit in. And I'm not scared of voicing my opinion. And I avoid scenarios I don't actually genuinely want to be in. I won't put myself in a situation I'd rather not be in and force myself to fit in. And it's a wonderful place to be in because I've got my integrity, I have my confidence, and I'm living the life that I actually want rather than fitting in for the first time. And it's had to it's had to get to know myself away from the alcohol beyond three months and it's been a journey and it's not been easy but it's been exciting and I would never go back to drinking because somebody has made me feel like I don't fit in around the culture that's fantastic I feel the same so you didn't give up on the first of Jan or I'm doing dry Jan you gave up on the fourth right So was that off the back of another New Year's Eve drunken session and it took you? Yeah, I I had to go in really hard for a final session. Um, So basically what had happened was I was um, on a cruise ship um, doing a one-woman show. So I had this act that I'd go on uh, one of the cruise ships within um, the Caribbean. We were in Barbados. We were were sailing around Barbados. And... um, I was on there for like four nights from kind of Christmas, uh, from Boxing Day onwards for like five nights, four nights, whatever. Um, and again, I didn't drink. I didn't drink over that time. I didn't drink in the lead up to it because drinking really affects my voice. I wanted to be on the best, um, the best that I could be. So I didn't drink on the lead up to it over Christmas. Um, I went on the ship. I performed, uh, did the show um, over those four four nights and then afterwards, I was like, right, it's blowout time because in 2020, I don't want to drink. So we didn't come back from our holiday because we got off the ship. We did New Year in um, St. John's and then we came back on the on the 4th. So I knew that we were going to have this. I, basically, I was having my Christmas <laughs> over those kind of New Year's Eve and a few days that we were in um, staying in, in Barbados. So... Um, yeah, so that's why it started on the 4th of Jan when we flew home. Do you uh, remember your last drink then? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, it was around the pool. I mean, on New Year's Eve, I got so blottoed that I fell asleep before the countdown. And then I woke up after and was so angry I'd missed the countdown on the beach because I wanted to be on the beach where everyone was partying. Mm. That I woke, I must have woke up about 20 to 1 in the morning and I was like, no, right we've got to carry on now. We've got to, we've got a party. Come on. <laughs> um, and we carried on drinking to like about four or five in the morning. Then that day was just feeling absolute rancid. Then started to drink again. Um, when I started to feel a little bit more with it. And then, yeah, I remember the last drink it was, we were having, um, rum and Cokes and beers, um, a lot, um, around the pool. So I do I remember it. 
I remember it was on the night of the third because we we're flying almost overnight and we landed in the morning of the fourth. Mm. Um, I was that was drinking before we got onto the plane, and then I stopped drinking on the plane. And when you like got up the next day, or uh, did you know then that this was it, or was you still doing well? Let's see how it goes for a month. Or did do you think in your gut you just knew it was over? I knew it was over. Yeah, I knew, I knew and I, I had to know because if I hadn't known, I wouldn't have been able to stick to it. And I believe I knew because I had to own my decision. Yeah. Because the minute you don't own your decision to something like this is that's when it's you're so easily talked out of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. That is the best advice ever, honestly, because, you know, I, I mentioned the post today about bolting the door and putting a draft excluder on the bottom because if alcohol will get in, it will get in. So yeah. you have to be absolutely firm with your decision and say, I don't want it. It's like leaving a narcissist or something. You know, yeah. you have to be absolutely bounded and firm and say, I do not want this in my yeah. life anymore. And I gave myself this one month, three month, one year. And I gave myself that as more as a um, me telling other people. But I knew, I knew I was not wanting to touch the drink again. I knew that if I'd have got through this year of not drinking, I knew I'd have cracked it. Mm. Um, and that was my aim was to do one year of no drinking. Mm. Now I did say to myself, you know, if I wanted to go back to it, I never put any promises on it. But I knew I was owning this decision. Because like I said, if I hadn't have owned it, if I hadn't have gone into 2020 going, no, absolutely N-O in capital letters instead yeah. of no. Yeah, maybe. You know, I, I'd done the maybes before. I tried and tested it. I'd done two months. I'd done a month. I'd gone over two months. You know, I, I'd done my dress rehearsal and I knew I, I had the ability to do it and really get to, a, you know, a long point of not drinking that this is this was my time. And yeah. it was no more enough. I am bored of my story I am doing this to myself. It is purely my cho choice. No one is forcing drink down my neck. I'm the weak one. I'm the one saying yes to this at every given opportunity. Uh, so therefore, I'm holding the key to my happiness here. It's my choice. Do I say no or do I continue with this same boring story or do I give myself a goddamn chance in life and say no now? for the sake of my mental and physical health and for the sake of keeping my family and everything and my loved ones around me. And that's and that's what it was. The start of 2020, I went in determined and no no one was getting past me uh, with a with a glass of wine. It reminds me of the gladiators. Do you remember that? And I, yeah. I used to absolutely love that. And where where you had to get past everyone, you know, uh, I can't remember what that was called, but um that's what it's like with alcohol sometimes. You know, you have to dodge the bullets. And yeah. but if you go in there determined, you've got a much better chance. And was there a part that you realised actually you're really doing it? Like in that first year, at what point did you think, I'm feeling different about this now? I, I am actually really doing this. Well, so there was a couple of points where, so the start of 2020, um, January, it was one of those, I had to um, be determined, own my decision and know my why. I really had to have that at the forefront of my head. I also had my partner was doing dry January. So it was slightly easier that he wasn't drinking at home and there wasn't that temptation. But we still had friends who were drinking and we were seeing them. Um, on the 1st of February, 
we went out for food because my part- partner wanted to celebrate doing January sober. And so he had a few drinks and I knew I had to batten down the hatches, mm. know what I was drinking when I was going to this restaurant for food. And I I kept writing down why I wanted to do this. I had a little note in my in my phone and I kept referring back. And on that meal, I just was kept thinking, just get through another 10 minutes, just get through half an hour. And it, I had to break it down that much at that point. Yeah. Um, but I just, just so determined that I'm not, this is, this is me now. I've got to do this. There is no breaking point. And so that was, that was a difficult time, but I knew I had a choice and I knew if I'd have woke up in the morning, that's one thing that I wrote up. I will regret my decisions when I wake up in the morning. Don't do this. At one point I had to have a mantra saying, I am not drinking. I am not drinking. You know, like you used to write the lines down at school if you got in trouble. You had to write them on the blackboard or whatever. That's what I was doing. I am not drinking. I am not yeah. drinking this mantra. Sometimes when I, I went out in February was about putting these tools in my kit. And I had found in February in that second month, if I'd got out or if I met friends, I quickly learned that I needed a tactic in place. And that was to take a pack of cards with me. So if they started to talk about why am I not drinking, da, 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 I would quickly change to say, should we have a game of cards? So my thought was not thinking about the drink. We would actually play a game. I'd put a quiz on my phone and we'd go through like quizzes. I started to do the would you rather game. People had to pipe on about why you're not drinking. I was like, would you rather have four arms or four legs and change the conversation where people would go, well, if you have four arms then I could do more of that with. No, well, if you have four legs and people would start talking about that. So it would take it away from the conversation. And then we would, have to speak about that for the rest of the night then I'd be able to slip off and go home when they were too drunk to even care so I had these little tactics yeah that's brilliant to get myself through in that second month then my third month was all about getting to know myself and actually I didn't want to go out as much I loved running suddenly I'd found this love for running um which has become my partner in crime it's my therapy it's my meditation it's I just love it and I love the fact that I do challenges with it. It keeps me, again, accountable to stay in this healthy way of living. And so I started to discover myself in month three with all like hobbies and new things and the things that I wanted to do and stay away from kind of the temptation of going out and seeing friends. And then bang, the pandemic hit. Now, at the time, I was on a cruise ship. I was doing, again, I was back on the same cruise doing the show. I'd had a terrible time on this cruise ship. And it was like the universe was testing me, like, are you really ready for sobriety? I'd got through like the hardest months of them all, the hardest being the first week, the hardest being the first month. Month two, you know, I got through that and I was feeling amazing. I got to the furthest that I'd ever been in my sobriety journey, turned up on the cruise ship. My MD hadn't turned up. He hadn't showed up. Now, he's the person who plays my music. He's my pianist, but we also do duets together. And he's part of my act. He, he didn't show. He wasn't there. We had no idea where he was. I had no sheet music on me. I had no backing tracks. I had to quickly print off some sheet music, find another pianist on the ship oh to fill God. in. I had an audience that night. Now, I used to have nightmares of this kind of thing happening in my career where I'd be on stage feeling like I was absolutely naked and not knowing what I was doing. And it was happening to me. Honestly, the amount of times that I thought I'm just going to have a drink, maybe I'll mm. find an excuse to cancel the show. I can't. I can't do this show. 
Anyway, I did a tiny little bit of a rehearsal with the pianist who was furious with me for making him work on his day off. He was not happy to be there. And he did not disguise his unhappiness. He showed it throughout the entire show. He played all of my songs at double speed. I felt like I was absolutely dying on stage. It was the hardest gig I have ever done in my life. I made a joke that my pianist hadn't turned up. There was there were rumours that there was a ship that had gone into lockdown in Miami and Miami and no none of the passengers were allowed off because COVID had got onto the ship. We thought maybe he was on that ship because he did a lot of the ships over in Florida as well. And he was coming from that area to join me on my ship. And but we'd found out he wasn't on there. But I'd made the joke in the show that he might be in, you know, on this ship. And we were talking about COVID during my act and you know I was getting the audience to partake in like conversations and stuff anything to not do a song with this goddamn pianist who was playing all my music really fast started to have a conversation talk about my career as much I came off you know when you're just looking at yourself in the mirror and you're just like oh god I hate hate myself I don't ever want to be seen ever again and the the easiest thing was to have a drink was to I am going to get drunk tonight, but then I thought I'll be worse tomorrow because tomorrow I've got to find backing tracks because I don't have a pianist. I don't know what I'm, I'm going to have to learn a load of new songs um, because I did a load of duets with him to pad out my show. So I couldn't get drunk. And I was like, no, you're not doing this. You are beyond this now. You can't have this in your life. This is the not, the, not the right time to get drunk. Anyway, um, I've got the backing tracks. Um, I've rehearsed with them. I then created the show went on the day after it wasn't as bad as the first day but I was still like a little bit all over the place then I'd done my fourth show finished it and we there were talks that Italy had gone into lockdown and I was thinking the worst thing that could happen to me right now is that I don't get home because I will if I get locked on this ship there is no way I am going to stay sober because this is just this is an awful situation luckily I'd got off the ship Three days later, that ship went into lockdown and was in lockdown for eight weeks with the passengers on it. Wow. And I had got home, I found out that my MD, who I thought I knew well, was a crack addict was and had got off the rails. I had no idea he had any addiction to drugs. He hid it so well. He'd left Miami, gone out that night, got on the drugs. And we, because uh, uh, well, what we thought, he was officially a missing person. We thought he'd gone, he'd been kidnapped, he'd gone missing. Something had happened to him. His family were contacted. Anyway, when I got home a few weeks later, we found out that he'd gone off the rails and that he was addicted to drugs. No idea. So uh, obviously, we then gone into lockdown. And I remember thinking, remember when we went into lockdown, it was a really beautiful summer's day. It was really hot, wasn't it? it was really, really hot. And we'd moved house and um, that, which which is a really stressful time. We'd moved house the day before Boris had put us into lockdown. And it was a beautiful day. And in the house that we were in at the time, um, we had this beautiful patio area with a gorgeous garden. And I was just thinking... Do you know what perfect now is to have a glass of wine after all the chaos that had been going mm. on? And nobody would know. Nobody would know that I hadn't stuck to my sobriety. But then I was like, but I would. Yes. I would know. And I wouldn't be feeling great. And and I had an interview with One Year No Beer on their podcast about being sober for three months. And at that time, I was nearly at 100 days. 
And I said to myself, okay, get to 100 days, do this interview, and then see how you feel. But again, I had to have that, no, you can't do this. And I'd, I'd had this chat with the One Year No Beer Gang. It really inspired me. Again, I'd got that from the community. And that's when I realized community is going to be massively important in this journey. I need to literally rally right around the sober community. I think that's when I discovered you. It's when I um, started to talk to Andy Ramage. Um, I think a few months then down the line, Matt Pink had started his sober journey and started to show, share online. And um, I'd been in contact with uh, William Porter because his book was really, although I hadn't cracked it at the time, the year before, his book was really the starting point for me to really understand how to stop drinking alcohol. And so then I knew that accountability of community, finding my tribe, finding people to be around was going to be really important on this journey. Sharing my story was going to be important. So I started to talk about my mental health. I started to share my running journey, my sobriety journey. And then it just started to grow from there. But yeah, there was a moment where I thought, I can't do this. The universe doesn't want me to do this. (laughs) Honestly, similar uh, things happened to me in my life that I've uh, it's been that sort of knife edge where it's like I go that way or that way you know but it's always been my belief in this is the way forward for me because if I do go that way that's yeah. the end for me because I am quite a bit older in fact and and my drinking you know I was on four different medications I was three stone overweight uh, I looked ill and I thought this the universe is actually telling me to go this way to so go that way you know, but three years on Susie and, you know, watching your journey. And I said that properly because everyone knows I don't like that word. Your, (laughs) your sober adventure is absolutely brilliant. Your life is just on fire at the moment. And it'd be really, really great to talk about, um, what you've achieved since your sobriety. Your running is amazing. Um, was it an ultra marathon that you ran? Yeah, I ran, um, uh, when was it? May 2021. Um, I ran for 19 hours consecutively, which I covered 60 miles doing. That's mad. Um, yeah. How did and you I, feel at the end of it? Awful. I felt like I'd been <laughs> on, on a, a three-day bender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, it was amazing because it, the reason I run, ran 19 hours was because uh, at the time, the statistics showed that 19 people take their own lives every day in the UK. And so because of um, the suicide rates and how mental and I, how I struggled with my mental health and, you know, the people close to me have struggled with their mental health. Friends of friends have taken their own lives. I just thought, actually, this is quite significant for me to run for the Samaritans. So I did it for the Samaritans. Um, and it was, it was a real metaphor for me, the running, you know, that, that moment when you think you don't have any more in you, the moment you don't know what kind of day you're going to have when you wake up, when you have struggling with mental illness. Um, it's all very similar to the running journey is about putting one foot in front of the other, knowing that it will get easier. It will get better. Um, and so, yeah, so I ran that ultra and I'm now actually in training for another ultra, but we're filming a documentary on it. So again, that's, it's about mental health. Um, but with this, with this ultra, I don't know what I'm running. So I don't know what I'm training for at the moment. Cause I'll find out on the day I'm running over four days and each day I'll find out what it is that I'll be running that day. 
So I'm currently running whilst doing panto. So I'm training for that. Um, so, yeah, it's really exciting to be able to um, film a documentary and, and really talk about um, the way we live, our lifestyles, because yeah. that's really what it's about. You know, it's about are we doing this to ourselves? Are we destroying our own mental health by the way that we are living? Are we buying into the stimulating lifestyle that we lead, you know, this fast pace, the social media, the news, mm. you know, by buying into that is enhancing our lifestyles by turning to quick fixes of happiness. Yeah. Instant gratification all the time, you know, like the swiping on social media, they relate to the one arm bandits back in the day, you know, that addictive pulling of that arm or, or, you know, the fruit machines and that where you, you've put 20 quid in, you think I'm just going to put another pound in to win my money back. It's, it's crazy mm-hmm. and it's all about slowing down, isn't it? And yeah. this is uh, where you come into your own as well because you, you've got your Happy Health Club app yeah. now. Do you yeah. want to tell us all about that? So um, in the pandemic, um, again, to keep myself accountable, um, I would run fitness classes. Um, when I went sober, I also um, went plant-based and it wasn't about me doing everything at once. Um, it was It was more about decluttering this home that I was living in and I was just making it so toxic with my behaviors with my self-sabotage with the way I was eating with the way I was drinking Um, and I wanted to declutter it and renovate my house and make it one to be proud of and so um, I really massively changed my lifestyle in lots of different ways and that was with nutrition and fitness as well and so um, whilst we were in lockdown and a lot of people were going live and, and sharing things, I'd had put this schedule together where I'd do some plant-based cooking um, with some experts and doctors and we'd talk about nutrition. I'd do fitness classes with my PT friends and then I'd talk about sobriety. And so from that schedule um, was born the Happy Health Club Um and that turned into, you know, having the three pillars, which was eat plants, try sober, get fit. Um, Because I believe when, you know, you do quit alcohol, you want to treat yourself the best way possible. And I think a lot of people then do look at their fitness and their nutrition eventually. And so I wanted to have this home, this wellness home where it's, you know, essentially a sober community where people, um, you know, can understand how to live life sober, but can also work on their nutrition and fitness at the same time. Um, But, you know, you look at athletes, you know, a lot of the athletes, they don't drink to perform the best. Mm. You know, footballers, you know, it's amazing, isn't it? Advertising is advertising all this booze over football and encouraging the fans to drink and get leery. Yet not one of those footballers or very few of them on that pitch drink because they need to perform the best that they can. Yeah. Um, You know, so, you know, within fitness, you know, we say if you want to get fit, quit drinking. If you want to lose weight, quit drinking because it's the drinking that makes you eat the, the bad yeah bad food choices yeah food choices it's the drinking that stops you from going to the gym when you're on a roll so um that's where the happy health club spawn is that we have this hub of wellness um for you to dip in and out of doing whatever you want and even if it is just taking a break from alcohol to Mm. start your way on the journey then great and and we say to people you know you don't have to do it forever but it's just mindful choices and being mindful and again being an environment where you're with like-minded people having positive conversations because you're not going to always get that from your circle of friends or from your family. And there'll be people who will try to talk you out 
of living the best life you can live because it holds a mirror up to them and they don't want you to not be part of their habits and stay with yeah, them. Yeah. Uh, it is funny, isn't it? You know, how we talk people out of staying well, staying Yeah, free. I know. That whole thing, it's the only drug you have to justify not having. It's just crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But that's why we need to keep banging the drum. Yeah. And you bang it loud. You're in Panto at the moment. And uh, we were messaging last night and then you went on a live. And, you know, it's so brilliant what you do. And I know you've got a dash off now to do um, Panto, haven't you? So yeah, I've got to run into work. Yeah. Um, Is that part of your training then, running? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So running, but it's part of my endurance training is to run on the days that I'm doing shows. So I yeah. can my endurance with the shows as well. Um so, yeah, but again, I've got to be really disciplined and I've got to watch what I'm eating and not turn to um, fatty, sugary foods. So yeah. I'm feeling the best and I, I want to keep it up. So, mm. yeah, it is about keeping disciplined, but I want to do this because I want to do the documentary. I want to share my story. I want to push myself out of my comfort zones. I really mm. enjoy doing that since quitting alcohol. I think I'm like the busiest I've ever been because I've got this time in my, on my hands, but I want to fill it with things that you know grow me as a person yeah yeah and before we go what does the fourth year of your sobriety look like to you oh I'm just looking for more growth and adventure I really am you know for the first time I went into this new year with no new year's resolutions because I didn't have to make any because Mm. I'm living the life that I want to live and it was just about owning again the person that I am and accepting who I am in all of my imperfectly perfect ways, you know, and I just, I just, I'm enjoying the journey now. I'm not having to fix my diet or go sober or get fitter. I'm just having to just want to live my life and accept me for who I am and where I'm going and just allowing the flow of the adventure to, to continue. That is amazing. And I'm celebrating my fourth year Saturday. And that's how I feel. Like, I feel like I'm finding a place where I'm just calm now. I could improve on certain areas. I'm climbing a mountain in May in Morocco. Oh, I know. Oh, that's incredible. And how has your fourth year been? It changes. You know, it really does change uh, over the years. You know, I always say to people who celebrate their first year, your second year will be different and then your third. But now my fourth year is almost like I'm beginning to really settle into it. And it's allowing me that space to really think about the next five years rather than the next six months. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I'm I'm in a space now that I can relax into it because I know I'm not going to go back. Yeah. I honestly know that. I've I got no reason to, and I just don't want to. So it's more of a, a plan for the next five years. And like, I'm, oh my God, this is horrendous, right? So when I realized it was January the 1st, I looked at my birthday and then I thought, I'm 60 next year. That is horrific. In the old days, right, I used to get a bus pass, a free bus <laughs> pass. But do you know what? The thing is, Susie, I'm here. I don't think I would have been here if I'd have carried on the way I am. And I'm feeling really great. I really am. And I say to people that in their 50s or 40s, you're never, ever too old to change your life. You really are not. And you look great as well. You look really strong and fit and healthy. 
Um, and and that's the age isn't anything, is it? If you're looking, no. feeling, if you're feeling great, that is a, that is you know the best way to be. Yeah, I'm going to leave it there on that wonderful compliment that you've <laughs> just gave me. <laughs> so thank you so much for fitting me in with um, your tight schedule. It's so lovely to have you on my oh, podcast. Thank it's thank it's a real honour, actually. Uh, and all the best for this year when you're running and your documentary. Please let us know when it's out and we'll all watch yeah. it. Thank you. And well done for all the work that you're doing and, and the fact that you're keeping me inspired too. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Susie. Have a great day and I'll see you soon. Thank you. Take care. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. Don't forget you can also order a copy of my number one best-selling book, One for the Road. It's full of helpful and useful tips to help you stop drinking. You can order it today off Amazon. You can also find me for extra support on my Instagram account at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.